Welcome everybody to our ongoing nightclub interview series, where my guest today is the author and esteemed scholar, Father Francis Tiso. But before we get started, as usual, a few very brief housekeeping items. Our book study group, which meets on Tuesday nights, still going on discussing dreams of life. And I think it's going to go on for at least another four months. So you're more than welcome to join us. I actually have another book coming out this week on the total other end of the spectrum called the Lucid Dreaming Workbook, which is a format I've actually never tried before, this workbook approach. But honestly, I think it turned out more or less okay. Outside of this, because of the holidays, things are pretty quiet for my end until I start up again with teaching gigs starting in January. So as for my guest today, I had a truly breathtaking time talking to this amazing scholar practitioner. I mean, really, he kind of blew me away. Central to our conversation was the role of light, so central to enlightenment, and actually the genesis of reality itself. I reminded Father Francis, something he knows all too well, that we are in fact made of stardust, literally, fed by starlight, and participate in an ongoing spiritual level of photosynthesis that I believe is actually quite illuminating. We then turn to a discussion about his amazing book, Rainbow Body and Resurrection, and talk about how Christ possibly attained the rainbow body and how this is possibly connected to what we know is one of the most famous relics in all of religion, the famous Shroud of Turin. We talk about the role of light mysticism in Christianity, Taoism, Sufism, and Buddhism, and then transition into a more advanced set of teachings and topics, really, from any contemplative tradition, including things like dark retreat, the practice of treksha or cutting through in Togal or crossing over, all of which come from the high schools of Tibetan Buddhism, Dzogchen. The whole conversation kind of circumambulates the central proclamation of the Hevajra Tantra, which proclaims wisdom abides in the body. Well, so does light. And so Father Francis and I discussed the relationship of this external light to the light of the mind and how, in fact, this light is connected to the light of lucidity. Join us. What a ride we, what a ride we had. Hi, everybody. Andrew Holacek here. I cannot tell you how excited I am to introduce you to a truly remarkable individual, Father Francis Sisso, and his breathtaking work. And so as usual, I will introduce um, Father Francis with a brief biography, and then we're just going to jump into some really rich conversation. <clears throat> so Father Francis holds a BA in Medieval Studies from Cornell University, a Master of Divinity degree from Harvard, and a doctorate from Columbia University and Union Theological Seminary, where his specialization was Buddhist studies. He was an associate director of the Secretariat for Ecumenical and Interreligious Affairs of the US Conference of Catholic Bishops from 2004 to 2009, where he served as liaison to Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, the Sikhs, 
and traditional religions, as well as the reformed confessions. He is the author of Liberation in One Lifetime, which includes his translations of several early biographies of the Tibetan yogi and poet Milarepa. And he is the author of this magisterial tome called Re uh, Resurrection and Rainbow. I'm sorry, Rainbow Body and Resurrection, Spiritual Attainment, the Dissolution of the Material Body, and the Case of Kenpo Acha. And so um, we'll primarily be focusing on that book. But Father Francis, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to meet with us. Yeah, I'm really glad to be here. And uh, it's an opportunity to be grateful and also to share some ideas that I think uh, other folks, you know, that have tuned in at various times, uh, you know, to the YouTube talks and things like that have really appreciated. It's helped people make some spiritual progress. So that's what we're yes. about. Well, let's start um, with you. And this is an impossible task, but um, elevator pitch on, on this book, uh, Rainbow Body and Resurrection. You know, give us, give us a brief overview about the, the kind of the spirit of this book. Um, and I love the way you also talk about the approach to uh, reading it, um, you know, to approach it almost as, as, a, as a piece of music as an art form. Um, but let's use that as a platform, um, Father Francis, before I ping some um, quite specific uh, questions your way. So tell us a little bit about this book and, and why you wrote it. All right, yeah, it, sometimes I refer to it as a kind of Mahler symphony. And uh, so it has, you know, returns to themes over and over again, and there are some repetitions, but I think that that actually helps orient the reader through a very complicated uh, uh, line of uh, research. You know, I did a number of uh, research trips and interviewed quite a few lamas uh, and yogis and uh, people involved with Dzogchen, but also other spiritual systems. And so to give uh, credit to these different traditions, the book goes into considerable depth about you know, what was going on in the past, and especially in that incredible eighth century in China and Central Asia, and also to go into uh, the different phases of the development of Dzogchen as an approach in, uh, in Tibetan Buddhism. So, and Bonpo as well. So the book uh, is an opportunity to open up a lot of uh, different uh, uh, encounters, right, among different religions and among different uh, refined and distinguishable lines of meditation practice, right, from Tantra and Mahayana, Theravada, many of the forms of Buddhism, but also some of the forms of religion that we find along the Great Silk Road. Uh, in Central Asia, including Christianity, Islam, Manichaeism, and of course, uh, Taoism, you know, the, the great Chinese uh, uh, synthesis of spirituality. So the book tries to go into all of this exploring, well, where would the idea emerge that a yogi can dissolve his or her body into rainbows? Okay, so that's what we're exploring. And the reason why I started this exploration is because my own spiritual teacher, Brother David Steindelrost, a Benedictine monk, was curious as to whether the dissolution of the body in the rainbow body phenomenon could be in some way compared or linked to his own research on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
right? So he was in dialogue with the Jesus Seminar people and wanted to know more about uh, these practices, which sound a little bit like uh, what happened to Jesus, you know, after he was taken down from the cross. So uh, we did, you know, I, I obeyed my spiritual father, you know, and, uh, and a long-term inspiration that I've had about exploring light phenomena in the spiritual life and went to Tibet and did this research. And uh, we also went to South India. We went to uh, meet with several people in different parts of Europe and also the United States and Eastern Europe uh, to look at the Eastern Christian uh, contemplative tradition to try to get a broad picture of this. And then what happened is that after I did the interviews and after I had collected mountains of information, I said, you know, this is really challenging. I need to think about this. So from about 2005 until maybe 2010, 2011, I kind of let the wine stay in the cask. Mm. All right. And I was really wondering whether I should even publish this. But a number of things happened and friends also encouraged me. And uh, so I decided to publish the book. I decided to put the book together and publish it. And uh, I got permission from uh, a monk of the monastery of Boza here in Italy to uh, translate into English and comment on his own translation of one of the important Chinese Christian works from the eighth century. And that was a great help too, because once we see how the Chinese Christians understood Buddhism, and how they were able to articulate their theology in Buddhist and Taoist terms, all of a sudden we have some really good material for talking about a real dialogue between advanced contemplative Buddhists and advanced contemplative Christians taking place in just the time when the beginnings of Dzogchen in Tibet are beginning to uh, bubble up, you know. And then people like Sam Van Shaikh, you know, in England, who does work on the on the early manuscripts of Dzogchen, you know, his uh, input has been extremely helpful too, because there you can see the phases, the steps by which uh, Dzogchen evolved in Tibet. So that's kind of an overview. the uh, The main point here I'm trying to make is that uh, conversations took place in Central Asia that were momentous for the development of a very profound approach to contemplative discipline. And what we called Dzogchen uh, for the early centuries, from about the 8th to the 11th century, is the story of encounters uh, of great masters and their lineages uh, that really changed uh, the way at least some Tibetans thought about Buddhist practice. Yeah, it's extraordinary, Father Francis. And, and, and when I read it, um, I was stunned at the scope of the scholarship. Uh, you introduced me to strains, streams of wisdom um, of which I was totally unaware. And uh, the kind of the incredible syncretic nature, you could almost say the holistic nature of how in almost a trans or interreligious sense, these, um, you know, no one has a patent on truth. And that we can we can draw in a more um, expansive and therefore humble way, opening the aperture of our academic lenses, our hearts and our minds to all these other amazing lineages of insight and around all circumambulating one of my absolute favorite topics, Father Francis, which is light. Um, mm -hmm. And you yes. know, it's like if we pause to reflect on it, it's extraordinary. We we are made literally of stardust. 
we're fed by mm -hmm. starlight. There's a reason there are so many solar theologies. And fundamentally, we are photosynthetic beings at both physical and spiritual levels. And so your, your illumination, pardon the pun, on this topic is just literally mind blowing. And, and for me, the resonance um, both with the Togal traditions um, in Dzogchen and in particular, the Bardo teachings, especially the luminous Bardo of Dharmata were mm -hmm. absolutely mind bending. And so here's, I want to start discussing a little bit more detail this amazing um, kind of bi-directional process that your book intimates from the outset, and, and this completely resonant with tantric um, kind of uh, imperatives, and that is that in tantra, body is as important as mind. And in tantric practice, we use the body, as you well know, in this kind of bi-directional way to actually transform the mind. And so it makes complete sense that, as you put it in your book, how is it that the body itself might participate in this journey and actually might participate in enlightenment? And, and I love, I so love your playful mm -hmm. sense of humor when you talk about, about how these teachings on rainbow body and resurrection intimate a kind of um, seal of approval, so to speak, of the tradition or that there is a happy ending. It, it, when people really take this to heart, it is an absolute deal maker. It's a total game changer that in, in my um, personal path, you know, a great deal of what I try to do, Father Francis, is, is again in the spirit of alchemy and Tantra, work with transforming obstacle into opportunity. And the ability to actually see the end of life and, and death is, is quite literally a once in a lifetime opportunity for these vast levels of uh, both psychospiritual development and also kind of manifestation of uh, accomplishment is no small thing. So talk to us a little bit about the role of light, photism, um, light mysticism, and how this is central to the journey of this book. Okay, yeah, it's a good one to dig in on. You know, I, I was a little bit hesitant about publishing this book because I felt that neither the scientists nor the historians of religion, uh, my, my colleagues, you know, in various universities would, um, would like this sort of thing. <laughs> they would be a little bit, shall we say, uh, reluctant to accept the claims being made and the thought that I would have to defend, as it were, in court, people who I had come to respect as really very holy people uh, really kind of put me off for a while there. And it took a lot of, a lot of courage, and I finally worked up the courage to do it. Uh, recently, I was going through some of my old papers, and I found a... Uh, a paper that I wrote about 22 pages long back when I was uh, an undergraduate at Cornell. And it is about the light mysticism of Dante's Paradiso. Mm. Okay. Now, as you probably know, everybody reads Inferno, you know, because it's so much fun down there, right? <laughs> but nobody reads Paradiso. So I said when I was a junior, uh, you know, working in medieval studies, let me work on the Paradiso. And I came up with this paper on the light mysticism. And, you know, Dante is interested in transformation. All right. And so many people have missed this theme, not only in Dante, but in Christianity in general transformation, the gradual transformation of mind and heart through exposure to a higher light, 
which St. Augustine mentions in his own mystical writing. So Dante describes his ascent through paradise as moving from one stage to another. And every time he rises, the light becomes more blinding, mm. right? And then little by little, he gets used to it and then he can move on. And so it's what's happening is the light is changing him. Mm. He, by being exposed to that light, by allowing it to penetrate his being, then becomes one with it and can move forward to the next stage until finally as the, the great vision in the 33rd canto of Paradiso of uh, the Trinity as, as three spherical rainbows. Okay, so there we are. And so this paper, you know, I'm reading it and I'm saying to myself, you know, I really need to put this on academia.edu because it's still a good paper, but also because in some ways it traces a program of research that started 50 years ago. You know, that, that we are bearers, each one of us, of a message in life. And I can see reading that paper that I already, you know, was being called mysteriously to do work on light and light mysticism. So there's a place to start, you know, in that. Now, in recent years, I would say starting about 20, 25 years ago, I started reading uh, the, the work of a Belgian Carmelite hmm. named Robert Boulet, who was working in Baghdad most of his life, translating all of these obscure texts out of Aramaic and, and Arabic and Georgian and all kinds of other uh, ancient languages to try to understand the mysticism of the what's called the Syro-Oriental or the Church of the East, okay, the so-called Nestorians. And he was able to locate manuscripts that nobody else was able to find, and he translated them into French. And no one has yet seen fit to translate those books into English. Uh, he passed away in 2008. It's a shame. They, they really need to be translated into English, because there you will find direct quotations from the uh, Syriac-speaking mystics, the Aramaic-speaking mystics, describing light phenomena that are quite extraordinary. Spheres of light, just like the Tigle that yeah. you get in, in, in Togal practice, uh, in, in Dzogchen. And a lot of other things. Uh, in Edia, they report in Edia. They report states of wonder, which are, of course, Samadhi states, and uh, quite a few other things. And it's all based on a quite rigorous and uh, well-organized, but basically radically contemplative monastic way of life. I mean, these people went, they sent their representatives to Egypt to learn from the Egyptian monks how it was done. And then they brought that back to Iran and Iraq, and then later on into Central Asia, the practices that had been the basic Christian monastic tradition, the psalmody, the solitude, the silence, the absorption into wonder, the contemplation that goes beyond words, all of that. And so uh, you've got this uh, great tradition coming through Central Asia in the 7th, 8th, ninth century and encountering Zoroastrians, uh, Buddhists, uh, uh, also Indian yogis, Manichaeans, of course, and many others. And so there is this amazing uh, flow from West Asia to Central Asia and then on into China during the Tang Dynasty, right? So 7th, 8th, ninth century. And uh, they start writing in Chinese. Now, what's really interesting is that 
one of these uh, Christians from the Middle East who took the Chinese name Jingjing mm, yes. began to work with a Buddhist monk named Pradnya. And Pradnya turns out to be the monk from Central Asia, probably from what is now Afghanistan, who taught Kobo Daishi. You know who Kobo Daishi is? Yeah. The founder of the Shingon tradition in Japan. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. He taught Kobo Daishi Sanskrit. And he introduced him to the seed syllables that are fundamental to Shingon tantric practice. Mm. Now, Prajna seems to have learned Chinese from Jingjing oh, wow. when the two of them were working together on translating one of the Mahayana sutras into Chinese, which is absolutely amazing. And we begin to get bits and pieces, especially from Japanese scholars, on who was Prajna and who was he in touch with in the Tang capital of Xi'an in the eighth century. And of course, it's a, it's a uh, how shall we say, uh, kind of a, ro he wants a rogues gallery of the greats. You know, these incredible masters from India, from Japan, from Korea, from China, and so on and so forth, Central Asia, translating and discussing things, and also getting themselves sometimes into trouble. Jing Jing and Praja got into trouble with the uh, Imperial Translation Board because a Christian wasn't supposed to be translating a Buddhist sutra, you know. But, but then Prajna came back and said, but I, you know, I learned Chinese so well from this guy that... Uh, he fought back. He translated the, uh, the Hua Hien Sutra, the great Avatamsaka or um, Lotus Garland Sutra, uh, which clearly is translated in what, four or five volumes? And uh, he translated that. And of course, that has the Gandavyuha Sutra in it, right? Yeah. And the, what, what happens in the Gandavyuha Sutra? Manjushri sends his disciple Sudodana to go and meet with 53 teachers of different lineages different genders, different religions, and so on and so forth, to learn the wisdom needed to become a true bodhisattva. So it's as if Prajna is saying, you see, the scriptures justify what I did with Jing Jing. Yeah. And in fact, he won, because in the end, they made him head of the translation bureau. <laughs> so, you know, what a great story. But it, it shows us the climate of intellectual intensity and spiritual intensity that prevailed at that time, late 8th century, in Tang China. And that's just the very time in which uh, the uh, imperial uh, dynasty in Tibet is introducing Buddhism formally as a state religion. And so there is a lot of exchange between China and Tibet at that time. And I think there is little doubt that the Tibetans knew what they were getting into with the West Asian religions. Uh, they knew about Manichaeism. Uh, it's harder to demonstrate they knew a lot about Christianity, but they were very suspicious. They were standoffish. But there is one text from Dunhuang, which is very interesting. Do you know what you know what Mo is, right? Yes. The the divination Absolutely. procedure. All right. Oh, yeah. Now, uh, Mo uh, involves the use of manuals, somewhat like the I Ching in mm -hmm. China, and the, in the manual you have the possible readings of the throw of the dice or the number that comes up when you toss the mala in the air, depending on what, uh, what system you're using, you get the number. And then you read the saying that goes alongside the number. So the number that corresponds to the uh, amazing 
divination relating to Jesus in a Tibetan Mo manual found at Dunhuang. I think it was 12, if I'm not mistaken. And so you, you can see that when somebody got the number 12 from throwing the dice, they would go to this one and would say, oh man, your best helper and protector is Isu Mishia. <laughs> okay, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus oh, the wow. Christ, wow. who is just like Shakyamuni and Vajrapani. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay, and the outcome will be very auspicious. All right, it's right there in the in the text, which you can find on the uh, the Parisian collection of the Peliot uh, Dunhuang manuscripts. It's incredible to see that, you know, in actual. Uh, you know, right there in ink on uh, on that paper going back to the 8th century. And so the, the Tibetans did know something about Jesus and held him in high regard. So uh, there is a connection. It's a thin one. It's a, it's a very subtle one. But uh, it's something that tells us something of the kind of exchange that went on, you know. They knew about Islam, too. And, uh, and they specifically knew about Manichaeism under the imperial... Uh, period when they were introducing Buddhism as a state religion uh, with the help of Kamalashila and Shantarakshita, they specifically stated that Manichaeism was going to be prohibited, all right, from Tibet. They did not want the institutional presence of Manichaeism, and they give a typically uh, scholastic Buddhist reasoning to reject it. And I suspect that uh, officially they did the same thing with Christianity. But that didn't, obviously, that didn't mean that in some parts of the Tibetan Empire, Christianity was known, practiced, and even integrated with uh, some of the Buddhist practices. So there's a lot going on there. Uh, when we get to the story of Garab Dorje, there's even oh, more right. surprises. No, it, it's truly amazing. And, and you know what, what, several things come to mind here, Father Francis. One is this just extraordinary rich uh, kind of cross-pollination that can take place. And I, I'm curious, just a bit, kind of a little sidebar thing, to what extent um, are you finding resistance both within your Christian tradition and also um, <clears throat> Buddhist levels of receptivity? Because, you know, I, I would suspect that, you know, many people are highly proprietary about their streams and, and they don't want this kind of cross-pollination. Like, for instance, when I read your extraordinary history of Dzogchen and how, in fact, it was influenced by these Christian strands and others, I, 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 first of all, I was blown away. And secondly, I was going, gosh, I wonder how this is going to land with the traditionalists on this. So before we talk, I want to return more deeply into the notion of body and light in just a second. But I'm curious along mm -hmm. those lines, you know, one thing that, that comes to mind, there's this playful saying, you can always tell who the pioneers are because they're the ones with all the arrows in their back. And so, so Absolutely. I, and I always say, well, you know, it's interesting because they're they're shot by those behind them. That's why the arrows are in the back. But how how many arrows are coming your way, or how how receptive have you found this truly radical research to be? Yeah, I think a lot of times the problem comes more from the uh, uh, Buddhist side. Um, by the way, with the bunpos, I've had no trouble at all. And the bunpos Wonderful. have been extremely, extremely good and, and extraordinary uh, when we get to what their practices are and the implications of their practices. We really have something uh, quite 
quite accessible. That's what's extraordinary about it. And with the Nyingma people, they love to layer on one thing on top of another to let you know that, you know, they've got this gigantic, complicated system that explains everything. And it's typical of a self-defense mechanism, you yeah. know, that you have yeah. your scholasticism that can, uh, you know, um, uh, break the break the head of your opponent kind of thing and sometimes there is a little bit of a kind of uh, sectarianism that comes in but you know uh, all i'm doing in my book is i'm citing people who are well known uh to the study of Dzogchen. everybody from the bunpo scholar in paris santan carme who was respected by everybody the first person to write a full-fledged book on the great perfection uh, David Germano, right. University of Virginia, one of the, the top scholars in this area. Sam Van Shake, who's doing brilliant work and publishing one practically one book a year on the early history of Tibet, using the Dunhuang manuscripts and other materials. Uh, Dan uh, Martin in Jerusalem, who's been an extremely helpful uh, uh, friend and guide over the years, uh, one of the really great historians of, uh, of Tibetan, especially of the obscure aspects of Tibetan history, and so many others. You know, so uh, I'm really citing people who are really very well known and highly respected. And so uh, the, the idea here is that uh, what I'm proposing is that there had to be some kind of a click, right? <laughs> there had to be some kind of a thing where, you know, Buddhism, which as Santan Karma explicitly states, Buddhism was not really all that interested in the body. Even in the tantric practices, the bodies are a means to an end, all right? And the end is not embodied, okay? Then all of a sudden you start getting people talking about, you know, transformation taking place and that's a typically tantric category and then you start to get into a you know the use of the mind in such a way that mind and body together are, are beginning to experience the diffusion of light and this is where you get the the um, the body of light phenomena and we're getting that also in uh, chan buddhism as well as in in uh, Vajrayana, and we're getting this experience. Now, what is this experience? Let's just talk a little bit more concretely now, not just Perfect. historically. Perfect. You know, the what starts to happen? A person receives, and, and this goes with the early Dzogchen experience in Tibet. The uh, people at the at a high level at the court of the emperor were receiving tantric initiations. All right. They are beginning to do the mantras, visualize themselves as the various deities or bodhisattvas. They are experiencing deeper states of meditation. Some of them are a little impatient with the, with the practices and the large numbers of mantras, but they are given guidance you know, by people like Vimala Mitra and other important disciples of Garabdurje that they should not be worried about that. That the main thing is to bring a clarity and relaxation of mind to all of these complicated practices, right? So that the, the frame of mind is what counts in addressing yourself to tantric ritual, liturgical practice, okay? Now, as you go on with this kind of practice and your body is becoming you know, assimilated, to that of the deity in the tantric cycle that you're practicing, 
what are you supposed to do next, all right? When you get signs of accomplishment through having done your mantras, right? You're starting to get clarity of mind. You're starting to get deeper samadhis. You might get some paranormal phenomena, stuff like that. All right, then you can begin to work on the perfection stage, right? The perfection stage, which involves visualizing channels, chakras, the droplets moving around in your body and so on and so forth. And at that stage, the body becomes very important and a kind of synesthesia starts to happen intentionally, all right? Where there is light connected with objects, connected with seed syllables that are coursing through your material and subtle body simultaneously. Now, as you get good at bringing the energy winds, right, the lung or prana into the central channel, right, the avaduti, you get that in there and you start experiencing a kind of luminosity. Now, in my own experience, because uh, I shared this with, you, you know who Ani Tenzin Palmo is? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. yeah. She's she's very, very dear friend, you know, oh, yeah, very she's... close friend. And uh, she was living in Italy, you know, uh, yep. in the 90s. Right. And so I would tell her, you know, I'm getting this phenomenon where, first of all, I can like, close my eyes, look down into my body and see my glottal stop at the throat opening and closing. And then I start to get this kind of purpley golden light, right? But then it goes away. It kind of escapes. And she, she was the one who helped me recognize that that was the beginning of getting the wind into the, the winds into the central channel. Mm -hmm. And so I continued working on that. And uh, little by little, I could get a sphere-like shape. It was sort of a violet colored sphere with golden edges, okay? And this uh, this began sort of like an amoeba, you know, kind of stretching and all that. Then it got more and more spherical. And as time went on, I could control it more and more. So I even asked a Chan master in Taiwan about this. And he asked me some very interesting questions and he confirmed, you know, that it was a prana phenomena. All right. So I continued working on that. And then as I was moving into my research and interviewing people, I realized that this light was also the thing that uh, the Syriac monks were describing in their practice in Central Asia. They describe a sphere of this kind. and But it's also something that's described in some of the uh, tantric texts, and it's described for Dumo practice, you know, the heat yoga practice. This is what you're supposed to start seeing. And uh, so it, only in, and it wasn't, by the time I'd been working with this and then doing all this research, then I went to Mustang in the summer of 2019. And I had already had exposure to a number of tantric systems uh, through, for example, the Drukpa, Kadyu lineage, which is, of course, Ani Tenzin's lineage with the great uh, Gyawa Drukchen, and uh, some of the teachings also of Khandra Rinpoche, who's one of the truly great women masters of our time. And so these people, you know, were guiding me, and uh, I was getting, making a lot of progress with this. And uh, so, but in the Bonpo context, when they uh, gave us the Dumo practice that they use, which is relatively simple, compared to the one in the six yogas of Naropa, right. all of a sudden I could really stabilize and spread the light, not only through my whole body, but connect it to the light energy that seems to penetrate or pervade uh, everything around us. 
this was quite extraordinary when you when you start working with it. Uh, it shows that your energy and the universal energy are in a kind of uh, harmony, you know, yeah. a, a luminescent luminescent harmony that connects you to all phenomena. And so when Dzogchen talks about, you know, this primordial uh, origin pulsating toward us moment by moment by moment, and you encounter it moment by moment, so the time itself uh, collapses in this pulsation, right? this is, this is what, what you're starting to get. Uh, so this is really quite important because now we're saying that it is possible even for, you know, fairly, how shall we say, uh, even for us ordinary human beings, right, to begin to uh, experience this through a meditation practice that is accessible and that you can do every day and work on it and develop with it, which is just amazing because then it means that it's not just uh, the reserve of a handful of yogis in the Himalayas, but it's something that we can we can do. And I've been noticing uh, people taking retreats with me or doing our weekly meditation, and we're getting very uh, very good results, very good results with these practices. So we're seeing people uh, maturing spiritually, noticing transformation in their conduct and uh, working with the light phenomenon. So this is, the implications of this are enormous. They're enormous. <clears throat> so <clears throat> let's, take, let's take, oh, I didn't mean to cut you off, Father Francis. Was there more you no, wanted to say? That's, that's fine. Yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh, this is um, infinitely fascinating to me. Maybe we can um, look at this, explore this a little bit uh, using this notion of light and, um, its relationship to physic so-called physicality and its relationship to mind. And, and by that, what I mean is there is some kind of, and again, um, you're a Catholic, there is some kind of Catholicity to this, to this phenomena of light. And that um, what I want to talk to you a little bit about is how um, what we refer to as light, you know, the relationship of external light um, to so-called internal light of the mind. It, it's in my estimation, and I'd love to hear what you say about this, external light is not the same as the light of the mind, but nor is it different. And somewhere in there is the kind of truth. And, and um, to kind of dovetail this even further, so I'm pinging that direction, what is the relationship to light of mind to light as the physicists describe it? And as you probably well know, and if you don't, I, I wanna share with you just a few very um, interesting provocative statements from um, you know one of the physicists mystics of the last century, of course, which is David Bohm. So hang with me on mm -hmm. this, and then let's unpack this a little bit. Sure. One, uh, one is, um, this is David. For those of you who may not be familiar with his work, uh, one of the main students of Einstein um, literally wrote the textbook on quantum theory, um, brilliant, very sensitive thinker. And so there's a couple of things he says here, uh, Father Francis, matter as it were, is condensed or frozen light. All matter is a condensation of light in patterns moving back and forth at average speeds which are less than the speed. <clears throat> frozen light is energy and it's also information, content, form, and structure. It's the potential for everything. And then one last one, and then I'd love for, for you to run with this a little bit. Mass is a phenomena of connecting light rays which go back and forth, sort of freezing them into a pattern. 
So matter, as it were, is indeed condensed or frozen light. Even Einstein had a hint of that idea. Mm -hmm. You could say that when we come to light, we are coming to the fundamental activity in which existence has its ground. Light, in its generalized sense, not just ordinary light, is the means by which the entire universe unfolds into itself. Particles, and that dot, 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 particles, um, brackets, are ripples on this vast ocean of light. So how, how, when you hear that sort of thing, where do you go with that? Yeah, well, it sounds like what we were getting at with the bump ups, doesn't it? Exactly. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know? <laughs> and of course, with all of the, uh, the, the light mysticism, uh, even going back to um, uh, the treatise on the resurrection from Nakamadi, where they talk about uh, being swallowed up by solar light, Okay, uh, you're talking about now the basis of the Gnostics traditions when you yeah about yeah the 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 Egyptian Gnostic uh, texts. So there you have that idea that the contemplative experience for these mystics was to be literally swallowed up by solar light, and uh, and thereby participate in the resurrection of Christ. And uh, keep in mind that that's an allusion already to things that Saint Paul said in in the letters uh, to the Corinthians. So it's a, uh, it's a constant theme. Evagrius Apontus talks yeah. about the light as being sapphire in color. And he saw it, you know, he experienced it. For him, it was, in fact, a contact with the risen Christ, or this kind of experience. And that's what was handed on from the Egyptians to the uh, Syriac Christians in Iraq and Iran. So, uh, so this this phenomenon was known to them, right? And we're talking about, you know, third, fourth, fifth, sixth century AD. So this is before anything that is called Dzogchen is being taught in Tibet, right? Maybe there were some things like this taught in Tibet, though. I don't want to deny that. In fact, I have a feeling that I think where we're going with this conversation is that the light phenomena that uh, the scientists uh, like Bum are willing to talk about and explain in terms of physics were already known to contemplative practitioners, perhaps all around the world. All right. And that uh, when the Bunpo, for example, talk about masters 18,000 years ago, it's not that we have to have a fight over historical information. What we really need to do with that 18,000 years is think about the likelihood that human beings have been working on this for a very long time, all right? I'll tell you an interesting archeological discovery that really hit me uh, a couple of months ago. I went down to visit my uh, cousins uh, about two and a half hours away from here, further south, and uh, we went to a, an archeological museum in the town of Bisatcha, uh, which is uh, pretty much a totally unknown, totally forgotten place, except for one or two writers who live there. And what do they have in this museum? There's this burial of a woman about 30 years of age. Her dress is entirely covered with over 2,000 small bronze discs oh. that at the time of her life were highly polished. All right, so when this woman walked down the street in the sunlight, she would have glistened like 
solar light going in all directions, all right? So when you see a thing like that, you say, now, why did you do a thing like that? <laughs> you know, because something was going on inside her. She, I mean, they said she's a princess, but I think she was a priestess, you know? Okay. I think she was someone in that community who had reached a level of attainment and who wore it as her sacred robe, you know? And I think that there's evidence for this elsewhere. I, I, I was looking at a Chinese uh, jade armor that was used to encase the body of a dead person. Have mm -hmm. you ever seen those? No. That's amazing. You know, once again, jade is supposed to transform uh, our bodies and our minds. Here's the entire body being, uh, you might say, put through a jade lens, all right, at the time of death. So these insights about life and death, about uh, moving through the bardo, about uh, encountering light in this life as, a, as an inner experience and then connecting it with the light that is, as uh, Bum rightly put it, uh, the, the frozen light of, of apparent material reality. See, so th that quotation, I, I don't know how many times people have quoted it for me, you know, and I, I, I love that quotation because it really uh, expresses uh, what the, uh, something like, you know, Kenpo Acha, when he died, uh, what did people see? They saw rainbows all over the place. In fact, they started seeing the rainbows before he died, all right? And also above his hermitage in Eastern Tibet, this is 1998, there was a gigantic sphere of light, all right, that could be seen from over 100 kilometers away, all right? So when he passed and his body began to dissolve, there were light phenomena released by the phenomenon of the shrinking body. Now, of course, this is one of the things that people told me, but no scientist will ever, you know, be willing to accept the idea that a body of anybody is going to dissolve into light at the time of death. And I said, well, we can just approach this anthropologically and then we'll worry about the science later on, right? But in, in two recent articles, I tried to go over the anthropological uh, aspects uh, with greater care. And then a second article that I wrote where I tried to look at research uh, on light phenomena during meditation, which are quite common, of course. And then also the very interesting phenomenon of biophotons. Yeah. Have you done any work with that, with a the biophotons? Bit. Yes, a little yeah. bit, but please illuminate me. Again, pardon the puns, but. <laughs> sure. Yeah, first of all, what surprised me is that people like uh, Schrodinger were, yep. were involved with this right in the 1920s, that, that biophotons are not a new thing, that 100 years ago people had figured out biophotons about the same time when even the word photon wasn't even known. You know, but they started to detect weak levels of light coming out of the cells. Yep. Now, in, in recent decades, uh, in, especially in Central Europe, they've been doing research on the biophotons as a therapeutic uh, mechanism and there's this Chiron uh, device yep. that is used to assist the body in setting its own biophotons on a healthy trajectory. Okay, so that's kind of interesting. They don't put biophotons into the body, they try to stimulate the body itself to make healthy biophotons. Now, what do the biophotons do in the cell? Well, it seems that the photons, this weak luminous energy, you know, just a couple of photons at a time, come out of the nucleus. Probably they come out of some 
uh, electrochemical phenomenon connected directly with DNA, yep. which convey information to the uh, protein synthesis procedures that normally we think of as, you know, that messenger RNA brings the information from the genes to near the mitochondria where they get energy, where they assemble the protons. But uh, that particular model now needs to be supplemented with information about photons coming out of the nucleus that direct the process. And direct the process, apparently, according to some research, uh, to the extent of literally hundreds of thousands of chemical reactions in the protoplasm. So, you know, this is just amazing stuff. It means there's light already there. Yeah. And so the contemplative practices must in some way be connected with enhancing or in some way working with that luminous energy. And in fact, maybe what we're seeing when what, as I said, was pranic winds coming into the central channel is not only going on in the central channel conceived of as a channel in the center of your body, right? It may actually be seeing luminosity on the cellular level, you might say in a collective way, right? Like in calculus, yep. where you have the, uh, you know, the, the summing up of all of the little bits and pieces in one, all right? That seems to be maybe what's going on in the subtle body. The subtle body knows how to interact with the information load coming out of the nuclei of billions of cells, and that's what you see. That's why I think the uh, the Togal uh, paintings yep. in the Lukang Temple, you know, in Lhasa, I think that those are kind of you know expressing this idea in a graphic way. It's just astounding. Um, I mean, just absolutely mind bending. And I love this notion again of how this information coming from the nucleus of these cells um, to inform protein synthesis is yet another iteration of this foundational quality of photosynthesis, that even exactly. here information is transformed. But let me, I wanna say a couple of things here, Father Francis, because again, I, I get so excited when I hear these types of proclamations. And, and one, two things, one is, one of the things that this does for me when, when I listen to this sort of thing, and I have to credit my dear friend, Ken Wilbur, with the first part of the statement where, you know, in the Western world, we have this kind of, you know, uh, really sad, anemic, pathetic <clears throat> physicalism, this reductionism into, into matter, which Ken refers to playfully as, you know, you can reduce everything to the play of frisky dirt. And, <laughs> and, what, and what you do here, when I listen yeah, to this, yeah. it completely reverses that trajectory. Instead of reductionism to frisky dirt, this is elevation, elevationism to sacred light, that it mm -hmm. is a complete um, uh, radical transformation of the genesis of, of reality. And therefore, in, in my world, Daknan, you know, this is, the, this is the basis of pure perception of sacred world, that the world mm -hmm. is not made of matter for goodness sakes. It's made out of, I mean, whatever you want to call it, the ineffability of a kokoro, you know, heart, mind, spirit, or light. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. to me, when I listen to this, it, it just, it lifts me up into this. In fact, in a certain way, it jogs my memory. It, it, it just basically um, helps me remember that in fact, the world is, so to speak, an emanation, radiance, and construction of this. But I wanna ask you a couple of questions. Um, I've heard some tantric translators equate um, when, the, when the subtle body inner yogic traditions talk about, you know, long chi, prana, 
Holy mm -hmm. Wind and the like. I've heard some authors um, use that virtually synonymously with these lights, but I've also heard others talk about, especially in the Togal tradition, that you know, kind of subsuming beneath even the subtle body of the inner yogas is in fact an even more refined network of channels, you know, the kati crystal tube, the yes. lamp you're talking yes. about within Togal. So that so I'm, I, this is actually a question for you. Is, is your experience in research that these winds are in fact isomorphic with these lights, or is it in fact that these lights somehow are sublimate or actually even more foundational than even the winds? And this isn't this isn't an esoteric. I mean, I guess it's one, on one level it's esoteric, but it does have some profound implications. So what, what is your rendering of that? All right, uh, this is very important because if you look at the, uh, uh, for example, John Reynolds had something yep. on, uh, uh, on the web about Togal, uh, and it's really clear that uh, even to get to the point of being able to perceive something like the Kati channel and the way it works with projecting luminosity from the eyes. You'd already have to have developed uh, your ability to uh, work with the subtle body, right, with the pranas prior to that. In other words, it's a step-by-step uh, -step process of becoming more and more subtle, which is exactly what we have in the Atri uh, text wow. of the Bunpos, you know, the idea of 15 steps principally to perfect the trekcho process, all right, to get you ready for the togal process and introduce you in subtle ways to the togal subtlety, to the togal experience of more subtle light energy, all right? So that's the power of that Atri text. In 15 steps, you're getting an amazing introduction to uh, the subtle body, to the nature of mind, and to the luminosity within us, but also to the luminosity around us, okay? And then once you get pretty comfortable with that and you can work with that, then when you go into dark retreat, you know, this, this uh, extraordinary connectedness yep. of all of the energy is going to take the form of the Togal visions, right? And you're going to have the further development of this subtle ch channel that comes from the heart and then goes out through the eyes, but and, and other phenomena of this kind. So it's just becoming more and more subtle, but to the yogi, it's not a question of more and more subtle, it's really just more and more sensitive all right, you're more and more able to work with that level of energy. And I think that this is, you know, something that uh, <clears throat> I, I would love to see some experimental work on this kind of practice. Isn't it? Because we are doing a lot of stuff, you know, with EEG. Yep. And Daniel P. Brown, one of the translators of the Atri text, you know, with uh, Geshe um, Sonam Gurung, yep. uh, they, they translated that text and the, also the, the, the Shardza commentary, which is massive and very profound. Uh, they, um, actually Dan Brown published an article with uh, some of his colleagues on uh, this kind of research. And they did a very good critical analysis of things like EEG and the different kinds of waves and what kinds of results you get if you do a real sadhana and not just a piece of a meditation practice. And it's really a brilliant little article there and uh, it really helps us understand where we could go uh, with uh, even with equipment that we already have, you know, MRI and EEG, especially if we can move EEG like they do with uh, you know, when you're having a, 
a heart attack, right? They put the, uh, the electrodes on your body. Right. So uh, if they could do stuff to uh, notice energy transformations in the body itself during uh, sadhana practice, I think that would be really, really helpful. I think we could make a lot of uh, progress on the science end of this research. In the meantime, of course, we're going to be doing our meditation, right? <laughs> and we're going to try to do retreats and we're going to try to do things that uh, will awaken our what's already there. All right, to awaken yeah. what's already there and to put. Now, I see the trick here, um, Andrew, is this whole thing of what's the connection between mind and chemical stuff, you know, the, yeah. the, the, the biochemistry? Yeah. What's the bridge yeah. between, you know, my thought and, you know, they already in quantum mechanics, they'll talk about the role of consciousness, the role of the observer. Uh, I, I, I have a quote here from Einstein from, from Arthur um, Zajong's book, you know. Oh, yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Right? Yep. The, right. Behind the tireless efforts of the investigator, there lurks a stronger, more mysterious drive. Then there's a colon, and it says, it is existence and reality that one wishes to comprehend. Well, existence and reality, of course, are coming out of Western philosophical perspective. But basically what that's saying is we're looking for the foundational meaning uh, of the phenomena of light of which we are composed, of which we ourselves are composed. In other words, the investigator is investigating the investigator. <laughs> the investigator is looking at why the investigator not only does research, but why the researcher even exists at all. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. And my friends in Mind and Life Europe are working on this. They they did a, a recent uh, seminar. We had to cut it kind of short to fit into the program that they had in Vienna, but they're working on this quite intensely, especially the younger scientists up in uh, Austria and France and Switzerland and so on. They're very curious about the the why. Why do we investigate? What does research tell us about what we are as beings all right. And of course, if we're investigating, as we are today, light and light phenomena, yogic practice, uh, dark retreat and everything else, clearly the, we're getting closer and closer to the, um, the spiritual side, shall we say, of what our physics friends have discovered about uh, the mathematics and physics of light. All right, all of this business is, you know, the 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 wonderful experiments that uh, uh, Zajonk describes. You know, the the beam splitter, all right, which actually ultimately doesn't work, <laughs> you know, because there is no trajectory for the for the photon. All right, the photon kind of starts and arrives, and in the middle, you don't know where it is. Okay, because right. there is no where it is. There is no trajectory. All right, so and this is fantastic, uh, because it implies that it's in that web of luminosity that becomes accessible to your uh, your inner eye in the state of contemplation. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So, so a couple of things here. Oh my gosh, you know, and, and briefly, I'm quite serious about this. I um, I was in conversation with some neuroscientists just like last week out of Giulio Tononi's lab, University of Wisconsin Madison. You know, connected to Richie's amazing thing. So Benjamin Baird, Melanie Bowley, th these people are doing some absolutely groundbreaking 
work. And I would love to um, dovetail you into possibly joining us in conversation about some study designs, because we are actually talking about um, not quite this sort of thing, but as you know, scientists are always looking for things to study. And um, I would love to include you with a little bit more specificity in conversation with these cutting edge scientists so that in fact, we can bring some of this otherwise rhetoric into reality. So sidebar on that, I'd love to return to that with you. Excellent. A couple of things sure. here, um, Father Francis, is it fair to say that um, in a certain way, you know, when I've done dark retreat, I know a little bit about Togal, I know about, you know, the radiance from the, from the heart, the crystal tube coming out of the eyes. Is it fair to say in your both doctrinal and perhaps even personal experience that in fact, we have it backwards, that, that instead of um, receiving the sensorial phenomenal world, we in fact radiate it, we project it. Um, it certainly seems to be implied when light actually arises from the heart center, um, shines forth literally from the eyes, that, that, that in a real way, the Western world may in fact, pardon my French, have it a bit ass backwards. Can, can, would you go so far as to say that? Or do you think perhaps there's some kind of middle ground that there's there's a validity to both those um, projections, so to speak. What is your riff on that? Oh, well, that ties into what I said about the no trajectory for the photon. Okay, it just simply means that uh, we are immersed in this. Now, what I said earlier about the, you know, remember the Tibetan uh, phrase for the uh, the primordial. Uh, shining forth of phenomena. No, no, is it uh, the Kunje, Kunje, Gyapotum Kunje, right? Gyapo Kunje, right? The the king who creates everything, right? Which sounds really like, almost like biblical Hebrew. If right. you think of the Melecha Halon, you know, it's really oh, pretty amazing. It's like yeah. maybe the Jews got to uh, to Tibet also. But mm. that that Melech, you know, that king, that Gyalpo, all right, is none other than the pulsating, you know, center of all phenomena, okay? So the pulsating center of all phenomena is what generates all the phenomena that, including perception itself, okay? So simultaneously, perception and the object of perception are generated. Okay, they arise. Yeah. And we could be deluded into thinking, oh, you know, this and this and this and this and this cause and effect, cause and effect. Or we could perceive it as, in fact, you know, from the start of the sentence to the end of the sentence, we've had pulsations, perhaps millions of pulsations coming our way from that uh, ubiquitous, non localized center. Okay. Right. And so that's uh, that's what we're working with. This now, you know, did you ever hear of a guy named uh, Thomas Berry? I know the Thomas, name. Yes, yeah, he was a, uh, a a passionist priest in New York who taught at Fordham for many years, and he's the inventor of ecotheology. Mm. And some of his students have continued on that line. People like Mary Evelyn Tucker at Yale, and you know, he used to say some amazing things uh, along these lines. But one of them was. You know, we have to reinvent the universe story, okay? We have to reinvent the universe story. And he was searching uh, through the ecosystem for this uh, narrative that he wanted to develop. 
But I have a feeling that the, the ecosystem narrative, which is absolutely exquisite, you know, when you have that novel that a friend of mine told me to read, uh, The Overstory. Do you know this novel? No, I don't. No. A guy named How Richard Powers, something like that. Anyway, it's kind of a deep ecology novel uh, taking place in our own time and very, very interestingly developed around the, a set of characters who gradually come together. But anyway, so that kind of narrative, the Tom Berry new narrative of the universe is fantastic. But add to it the, the light phenomena that we're talking about. Add to it our deeper understanding of the physics of all of this. And all of a sudden you have really, you have to rewrite Genesis. Yeah. You have to rewrite Genesis. And it's, and it's really uh, a, a, an exciting and challenging moment to be alive because now with our human language, we have to allow the discoveries of the past 150 years to turn into you know, a Tolkien-like narrative of moment-to-moment -moment luminosity, like what uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins talked about, the, the shaking foil, you know, it, it, it bursts forth like shook foil, you know, I mean, this very moment bursts forth like shook foil from the Gyapo Kunje, you know, mm. and it's just amazing. It's just amazing. The potential for literature, for poetry, for music to, uh, to emerge from a, a, a cultural appropriation in the best sense of the word, a cultural appropriation of this science that we're talking about is extraordinary. Uh, we really are on the threshold of great discoveries and, uh, and I think great satisfaction uh, because as I said, it's, it's accessible people can actually do this. <laughs> <You know>? yeah. <laughs> and Father Francis, one of the ways that this, this um, comes into my own direct experience is in fact with, with Dark Retreat. And, and actually I, I need to throw this out to the listeners. Mm -hmm. there, there are, um, in, the, in the Dzogchen tradition, there is, as Father Francis has been suggesting, there, there are two, especially in the, in the um, mind essence instruction um, schools, there are two principal practices of cutting through Chekshu and then crossing over into spontaneous present, the Togal practices. And, and then a part of the Togal practices, which is what Father Francis is re referring to here, is, is literally working with external light during the day and also going into dark retreat um, mm -hmm. as a way, just parenthetically in Bardo literature, penultimate way to prepare for death. But in my own experience here, Father Francis is in a very real way, I, I go into the dark to learn how to see, um, to re literally recondition, detoxify, and, retra and retrain my usually dualistic, not usually, by default, my usual uh, dualistic sense of perceptions to this kind of non-dualistic knowing epistemology where when you're in the dark, these lights appear and where are they coming from? Um, it, it, it completely challenges the notion of um, internality and externality, and therefore who is knowing what. And so therefore, when I asked the question earlier, do we have it backwards, where in fact, you know, according to the Western ways of looking at perception, we are passive recipients of, of external sensory input. You know, when you do things like dark retreat, you realize, well, maybe when I'm going in and something, something is definitely not coming in towards me, because my, I'm in sensory deprivation, but still lights appear and I am, so to speak, seeing. So therefore, that's where you start to see, literally, that um, we are responsible for the, the radiance that therefore 
projects into the world and reifies um, you know, into the frozen light that we know is our direct experience. So uh, there's, there's so much to ping here on this. A any comments about that in your own experience? Have you played a little bit around with dark practices? And, and uh, you, know, you mentioned some of these amazing experiences you had that Tenzin Palmo then helped you understand. Um, have you played a little bit with dark repeat and had these types of experiences within that container? Okay, I what I do here, uh, I have a room which I can make entirely dark, uh, and I use that, uh, especially at night, as a, a time for certain kinds of meditation, working with the, uh, working with that light sphere. Okay, and I'll do that sometimes in the afternoon as well, uh, but I will. I've never done, you know, uh, like say twenty four hours or three days, seven days, forty nine days dark retreat continuously. I have a couple of friends who have worked on that and they kind of uh, uh, put their, give me their input, shall we say. What I'm really aiming at with my way of doing this practice is to uh, begin to do lucid dreaming uh, mm -hmm. yeah. effectively. I've, uh, along with the development of the sphere of light and gaining control over that energy, uh, there are also changes in your dream patterns and your sleep patterns as well. So working with that is an orientation, yes, toward bardo, towards being prepared for death, but it's also a very, very uh, important part of recognizing our receptivity, that we are, you know, like radios receiving the radio waves, okay, uh, of this uh, continuous pulsation of being itself and the form of light. So this means that, um, how shall we put this? You, all right, let me put this in terms that even, you know, even I could say in my uh, sermon, you know, in church, um, you know, over the next weekend, uh, it's, you know, a Christian contemplative is interested in becoming skilled, even an artist at receiving divine grace, okay? So we're becoming more and more refined and skilled and talented and artistic and beautiful in our receiving of everything that's happening, everything that's happening, okay? And we receive it as grace, right? Remember George Bernanos, that last line in the diary of a country priest, right? All is grace, tout c'est grâce, right? It's just really fundamental becoming an artist of receptivity, mm. which gradually enables us to see ourselves as being immersed, you know, in a constant flow of pullulating flow, as, as uh, some people might say, of, of light and gracious energy, all right? When I was a teenager uh, working in a laboratory at the Boyce Thompson Institute for Plant Research in Yonkers, New York at the time, uh, they've now moved up to Cornell, but they, they used to be near where I grew up. And I took the bus there every day for a summer, took a course in plant biochemistry and worked in a laboratory. And every day I used to e inject a radioactive substance into the tips of these string bean plants, okay, in a gigantic greenhouse. That was my job. And uh, what would happen to me as I would do this, especially in that incredible photosynthesis going on all around me and the uh, beautiful, almost 
uh, cathedral-like quality of that uh, greenhouse was that I felt that, ah, this is how God does it. Mm. You know, that God injects moment to moment, microsecond by microsecond, what needs to be injected, all right, to not only keep us alive, but to uh, instruct us, uh, to, to guide us in the direction of the research that we are here to do. Okay, that's why we're here. And later on, you know, reading uh, people like, well, I was reading Teilhard a lot that summer, but sure. reading also Bernard Lonergan later on, you see how Lonergan also came to similar conclusions to what Einstein was saying, you know, that the investigator is in a certain sense looking for himself or herself in the research, yes. and in fact is being transformed by the research. Uh, Lonergan would say that that basic drive to know all right, is in a certain sense, the same thing you might say as the soul, all right? It's just the soul is a, is a word that describes that fundamental instinct, right? That fundamental characteristic of each photon in us, right? That is oriented towards uh, cognition, all right? And that cognition simultaneously arises with all other cognitions, all right? And the more you, you get good at contemplative practice, the more you will see this opening up. All right, so what do I tell people? I say, you know, all right, now we're sitting here, we're doing this meditation, and some of you are even getting nice light phenomena, right? Now, what's going to happen tomorrow, <laughs> right? You know, notice when it's happening. Notice when it's happening. You know, this was something we do with shamatha vipassana, right? You follow your breath. Now, when, you park, when you've stopped for a traffic light, are you noticing your breath for those few moments that you're stopped? If you are, you're making progress because you're noticing things, all right? Now on this higher level of luminosity and so on and so forth, uh, are you noticing that as you walk down the street, as, as you encounter people and phenomena, as you encounter your own train of thought? Uh, can you break it down into the photons that compose it? Uh, this, uh, this ability, all right? And I'm not saying that I have it 100%, but it certainly comes up you know, in the course of the day, you know, as we've, we've worked on this and now, you know, you're starting to see, you're starting to taste this quality of perceptive receptivity, all right, Hello. as you go along. And that's what we want, right? Yeah. If people could only get that far, <laughs> we'd be amazing, you know, it would be amazing. <laughs> it would be, yeah, you talk know, about the, the narrative, right? Isn't that, and it, it's completely in, in resonance with, with, uh, my favorite definition of, of meditation these days, was, which is habituation to openness. And, mm -hmm. and really, when I look at things like the nocturnal meditations, you know, lucid dreaming, dream yoga, barley yoga, in a very real way, what, what we're doing is simply opening the aperture of our heart minds to become, in fact, more receptive to phenomena that are always already present, but we simply are blind to them. Um, because we're too speedy, we're looking in the wrong direction, all the mm -hmm. usual ways that we avoid truth. But um, I, I, love, I love what you're talking about in terms of researchers fundamentally looking for themselves. And, and my dear friend, Reggie Ray, who, who's done some mm -hmm. marvelous work on the body, by the way, he, he said something once that quite struck me that, that I resonated with when I do my scar, uh, stargazing practices and the like, is that one of the reasons I find it so absolutely hypnotic and wondrous to look deep into the nighttime sky 
is that in, in a deep sense, I feel like I'm actually looking into, into my mind itself. And, and I want to take this a little bit further and return to this profound narrative of body. Um, because, you know, again, that's in so many ways the foundational, one of the foundational narratives of, of your book echoed um, in my rendering with, you know, the, the elegant hey, Vajra Tantra, you know, wisdom abides in the body. And so what I want to return to here along these lines, Father Francis, and see how this lands with you is that when I look at my own path and, and I um, stumble and fumble along where we actually go um, in a certain way, and this is why I, I love, by the way, the, the teachings on the trikaya um, mm -hmm. and, and actually why the word kaya is actually used. I mean, body is completely implicated in, in these, you know, the, the Buddhist version of the Holy Trinity, right? And so in my own experience, when, when I go so deeply into myself with these practices, and in a way I'm walking a kind of labyrinth that doubles as a, as a Mobius strip into the yes. very center of myself. And, and what happens is that, you know, when I, when I go to the very center, of course, what do I find? Well, I find nothing, I find no body. But what I also find so simultaneously, and this is where the labyrinth doubles as a Mobius strip, is when I when my body becomes nothing and I turn into nobody, my body is actually replaced by the cosmos. My body mm -hmm. then becomes the universe. And so I think this is incredibly helpful to throw into the mix when people explore daunting um, topics like emptiness and these otherwise formidable intimidating things that Yes, on one level, you, I wouldn't say you become no thing, not nothing, but no thing. It's more that you actually recognize that that's who you really are. And, and therefore, becoming nothing really means you become everything. And then, of course, from that is born compassion and all the wonders of the interconnectivity, mm -hmm. the deepest form of ecology. But is this resonant with your own experience and, and um, understanding of the journey altogether? I, I do. I have to, you know, admit that although the, these are <laughs> very high teachings, but once in a while it uh, it hits me. You know, <laughs> it does hit me. Uh, and of course, I'm in a, I'm very blessed in the sense that, on the one hand, I'm living in an incredibly beautiful landscape, which lends itself to the, uh, you know, gazing at the sky and all of that. But also, I'm working with people in really terrible situations and. Uh, you know, this whole migration problem here in Europe and trying to help them uh, uh, intelligently and sensitively and, uh, and working with impossible legal situations. So they, the balance between the glory and the beauty of the landscape and the grittiness of, uh, of the human condition uh, is a constant challenge to, uh, to become more sensitive, more aware and more cosmically oriented. I love that uh, first chapter of the letter to the Ephesians, which uh, is part of evening prayer at least two or three times a week in our Catholic uh, breviary, you know, the Liturgy of the Hours, and because there you have the whole um, notion of the cosmic Christ, all right, that what we were meant to be even before anything manifested or is already in Christ. We were already in Christ. We are manifesting now in this cosmos and we are going to return, you know, the apocatastasis. We're going to return to the universal Christ because we are the universal Christ, all right? It's not something that's so much temporal as it is 
moment to moment mystical. It's as if the entire process is offered to us in this moment, yes. period. Yeah. And the fact that we're given trillions of moments is just a superabundance of, of goodness and grace. Because really, if you get it in one second, it's all done, <laughs> right? But we're also given this uh, filling out, this, this pleroma, you know, this filling out of, of the, of the created creation process, all right, which in a certain sense is already encapsulated in the cosmic Christ that is exactly what you just described for the body becoming the universe, which is also, remember Nicholas Acusa, the, the God as, as the, the sphere with no circumference whose center is everywhere, right? I mean, that, that particular expression is so powerful. And it goes with my experience with the plants, you know, the, uh, my, my tending the string beans, all right? Like, like God tending every single microsecond uh, of the universe, injecting it with what is needed in that moment. And that's what, uh, that's what we're working on. Uh, you know, meditation is about attention. Uh, you said uh, habituating, you know, which is the literal translation of bhavana, right? Yes. Getting used to, right? Getting used to gomba, gomba in, yes. in Tibetan, right? Yes. And so that we're becoming familiar with a process that's going on constantly and, and, uh, and knocking at our door and, and inviting us to pay attention because we're part of it. All right. The more I think we realize our nothingness is when we come out the other side and realize that, oh, yeah, this is happening not just outside of me for my attention, but inside of me and, in fact, is me. Yeah, All right. And this, this kind of. And so along these lines, you know, in a certain sense, you've, you've been circumambulating this, but we're talking, you just mentioned earlier, I think this wonderful, perhaps unconscious, unwitting um, aspiration, motivation when, when scientists are actually doing their kind of work and, and how, as you alluded to, they're, they're in a certain way looking for themselves and they're changed by their research. I mean, obviously you, you've been hinting so many ways. Can you speak a little bit more explicitly, Father Francis, about, and I'm so interested in this, especially with, with uh, hardcore scientists, um, how, how, in fact, has this work transformed you? How, how has it changed you? Because I have to keep reminding our listeners, we may mm. be thinking that we're listening to one of the greatest uh, Tibetan Buddhist scholars on the planet. We're listening to a Catholic priest, for God's sakes. Um, it's <laughs> even more astounding. I, I, it's just, it blows me mm. away, Father Francis. So um, how, in fact, in addition to what you've already shared, how has this research opened the aperture of your heart and mind um, how has it changed you yeah uh you know going back to that dante article when i was 20 right i mean th that was what i wanted you see so then uh, through thick and thin and all kinds of uh you know tremendous obstacles uh it was not easy for me to get ordained you know and uh, uh came here to italy with a bishop who who understood this kind of stuff who studied with tom berry who studied with uh, your cousins, some of those visionary thinkers at Fordham University. So he was willing, he not only ordained me, but when he ordained me, he said to the congregation in our cathedral here, 
Father Francis is a bodhisattva, mm-hmm. all right? Do you know what that means? And then he explained what is a bodhisattva. It was quite interesting, you know, to, to think in 1988, a Catholic bishop ordaining a uh, young man as a priest, uh, you know, and announcing the doctrine of the bodhisattva, okay? But he wanted that, that uh, high altruism to get across. And, uh, and that was, you know, part of the journey. Now, in, in terms of, all right, when you know when i'm working with people uh or my migrants it's one thing you know it's a uh, uh they their uh their concerns are spiritual as well as material and uh we have had an inter- some very interesting bible study sessions with with the west african guys you know and some really powerful experiences with them as they open their eyes to the depth that's present, especially in uh, in uh, New Testament texts that we use at Mass. But then, you know, when I when I celebrate the Eucharist, all right, think about elevating the host and elevating the chalice at that dramatic high point of the Eucharistic liturgy. You know what is happening? You know that the body of Christ is rising over us and calling us to be drawn upwards, just like in the treatise on the resurrection, we are invited to be swallowed up in this mystery of light, all right? And uh, so for a moment there, rays of light are going all over the place, you know, because I mean, I'm, I'm seeing in, in the consecrated host, the, the thin wafer, but I'm also seeing, of course, the cosmic Christ, mm-hmm. right? So when I uh, celebrate the Eucharist, I'm experiencing what I have worked on as a contemplative, both in the Christian tradition with Dante and all that he represents, but also uh, in the Buddhist tantric tradition. And we also know that uh, some of the same insights can be found in the Tamil Siddha tradition in South India and in the Kashmir Shaiva tradition in Northern India as well. And among the Sufis, uh, the mystics of light in Iranian, in Iranian Sufism and many other places, all right? So this kind of luminosity that I can perceive with the Eucharist is something that I share with all kinds of other people. Now, in my interreligious work, we used to talk about these things, you might say, before or after the formal meetings. I had some really great conversations with some uh, uh, Shiite teachers, you know, who talked about luminosity and how one can see the luminosity on the forehead of a person. And one time I actually saw this on the forehead of a Bektashi mystic who came to visit us one day, you know, from from Albania of all places. You know, I looked at this guy and boom, there it was, you know. (laughs) So this is part of the dialogue process as well. The real spiritual dialogue is that moment of recognition when we see in that other person the same transformation that's at work in us, all right? I have to admit, sometimes I'm kind of amazed at, like take, for example, I gave a a two-hour workshop a couple of months ago online, you know, during the lockdown period, it was in May, uh, to a group of people, mostly in California, and I gave a very simple form of Dumo. It was really hardly anything to do with Dumo. It's just a very simple working with the central channel and breath. And people 
uh, a, you know, participating online, not even in the same room, right? Told me, yeah, I got it, mm. <laughs> you know. And and there are a couple of people that are in touch with me since that retreat, you know, and and share their experiences so that we can catalyze in one another the moment of recognition, right? The moment of in which the uh, as they, as the Kashmir Shaiva people say, right? The spanda, the the, the extension of primordial energy comes out, and we see it, and we and we know we're part of it. Uh, so that uh, that is really powerful because it means that uh, I've had the 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 wonderful blessing of being able to study with these teachers and to hand on something of what they've given us. You know, people like Namkainorbu Rinpoche and Kandra Rinpoche and Anitenzin Palmo and uh, the Gyawa Drukchen. I mean, you know, some amazing people, and they. You know, I never forget the time I was shaking. <laughs> I was shaking hands with Dubum Tulku. You remember him? Oh yeah. He was the head of the uh, Tibetan Library in New Delhi, and yeah. he came to with the Dalai, with His Holiness the Dalai Lama, to Italy to consecrate the temple at uh, Marigar. And I'm shaking hands with him, and this charge of energy is coming through from his arm to my arm, went right right to my heart. That was really something, you know. I mean, he had cities, he had yeah. cities, and he he was willing to let that happen, that yeah. moment of recognition. You know, there's you probably heard Father Francis the, the beautiful story of Paul Ekman when he first had contact with His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Very similar story. He, you know, Paul Ekman is one of the world's leading authorities on on um, facial expressions and the like, and he ah. have you, <laughs> he shares in his most beautiful, humbling story where you know he really had issues with anger and the like, and and when he had his first contact with his holiness, I mean, this is a hardcore, it's pretty skeptical scientist, right? He, he said something absolutely just electrified his entire body. And he, he never felt that kind of anger again from that one simple contact. And so I, I wanted to, this ties into, there's one quote in your book that I want to ping your way that I, I think is perfectly applicable here that I think is really worth a, a brief mention. And this is on um, page 118, where you say the following. I, I thought of this when you referred to what you saw with the, the mystic and the forehead seeing the light. Um, and so this is what you write. It is as if the very sacredness of the body of the yogin has an impact on the observers such that the observers no longer perceive in accordance with their karmic propensities, but with the enlightened perception of the yogin. That's an astounding statement. Can you unpack that a little bit more for us? Because it, it really, it, well, I mean, there's so much in here. It completely um, challenges our normal ways of perceiving. So can you tell, unpack that a little bit for us and how this ties in, in fact, to what's, um, essential for people to actually witness things, um, see things like um, rainbow body, because it's a little bit of the flip on, you know, I'll, um, I'll believe it when I see it and I see it when I believe it. <laughs> I mean, in this case, we'll see it when we believe it. So talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, remember that I, the, I think this is part of the discussion of, uh, uh, well, when we were with uh, the Dharma brother of Kenpo Acha, the, the Dharma brother's name was Lama Achung, 
all right? And he was the head of this enormous Yache Gompa, this big monastery, which has recently been bulldozed out of existence. Uh, he passed away in 2008, but we interviewed him in 2000. Uh, and uh, he told us that he would attain rainbow body. And in fact, in 2008, his body shrunk down to the size of a person's hand. All right, and that relic, I, I understand, has been preserved. But the point that he was trying to make in our conversation with him was, if you are ready for these teachings, you will see something on my face or in my body as you look at me, all right? And everybody was extremely perplexed. I won't tell you some very prominent people who also went to see him and were, <laughs> were quite perplexed <laughs> at this proposal. Fantastic. <laughs> I won't tell you their names, but 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 anyway. But I, what did I do? I'm looking at him, and I had this very funny experience because what happens as our in our Dzogchen practice, right? We're relaxing the mind into the contemplative state. We're not forcing, right? We're not contriving. So I relaxed before him, and I gazed at his face. And what did I see? But that very bishop who ordained me a bodhisattva, right? And I said to him, you look just like this Abruzzo guy, <laughs> you know, Bishop Di Filippo, you know, the bishop who ordained me. He glowed, he glowed, you know, because what does it mean? Guru yoga, yes. all right? I'm seeing my guru and in him, right? So that the coincidence of these, all right, so that his body presence, right, interacting with my perception right, is awakening in me the right attitude, yep. all right, the right attitude. And so I think that this is what we're getting at. It's why uh, some of my closest friends uh, on the path, one way or the other, will say, you know, uh, there has to be a saint, <laughs> There has to be that that guru, that that saint, that holy person, to awaken the the moment of uh, realization, the pointing out instructions, you know. And uh, so, in in the case of this dear friend of mine, uh, he and his wife are disciples of Ananda Maima, mm. the great Bengali mystic uh, who passed away in 1983, I think. And they spent many years uh, in her ashram learning day by day from her, her bodily presence, her insights, and her behavior, which were extraordinary, right? So the teachings came in that form. Of course, there were verbal teachings as well, but there was also this, this presence, okay? And so the presence awakens something in you, all right, that, that then can carry you forward in the transformative process. And uh, that's connected to the pointing out instructions. Remember, I love that three, then the three part uh, teaching of Gadabdorje really gets us to this, right? Yeah. right? The, the pointing, uh, pointing out the natural state, right? Then removing doubt through practice, of course, and then remaining always in that state. Right, those three. And that's quite similar to a Christian text that was found at Turfan, all right, in uh, the northwest part of China, right, which also has the three stages of contemplative awareness for a hermit, all right, which are the same, pretty much, <laughs> you know, so there's a connection all the time, these three, three stages, you have to be awakened to what 
what you are in some way, shape, or form. And then you spend your, your labors removing doubts. But then something dawns, right? And it doesn't go away. It doesn't go away. And that is, that's what we're about. <laughs> that's what we're, we're aiming at. And that's what we're trying to do uh, through uh, practice and, uh, and through receiving wonderful teachings from, from the great masters of all the lineages, just like Sudodana, right? Going to 53 different teachers, yeah. right? So that uh, the, uh, the field opens out very, very wide. Uh, and the narrative uh, does change, must change. Yeah, exactly. I think Jesus, I think Jesus's own approach to the uh, the uh, biblical heritage that he had, he's very selective, and he clearly was aiming at a much wider application of what he had received. You know, he he leaves out all of the all of the exclusivist stuff. <laughs> he leaves out all of the things that say you know us against them uh yeah. you know he he was moving that you know he was moving that uh, uh kind of mass of human uh, divisiveness and dualism through that insight and then and then you know of course we <laughs> we sometimes backpedaled on that but you know when you read the lives of some of the saints i was reading saint columbanus's life last night columbanus was uh you know from uh basically the Irish, the Celtic monastic tradition. And he kept getting into trouble all of the, all the time. <laughs> He's this great saint, very tough, you know, always getting into trouble. Finally ends up in Italy where he founded a monastery of Bobbio. But he's one of many of these uh, remarkable individuals through the darkest of the dark ages mm. who, you know, tried to move the mass of incomprehension and uh, tried to displace it with luminosity, with wisdom, with rig rigorous practice, you know, and creating monastic communities where you could actually do this stuff, you know? And uh, I'm, I'm just awed when I read some of these stories. Uh, I mean, the, some of the great towns and cities of Europe started, <laughs> they started as a hermitage in a cave, you know, and then went on from there. And, uh, and so this, uh, this is something that we need to get, recover, uh, to need to recover the, the magic of that Milarepa or that Columbanus or that St. Francis or St. Benedict, you know, that uh, through intense uh, inner practice awakened to a universal message uh, that, that, uh, that's for everybody, that is for everybody. Yeah. It's not just for the few. Absolutely. It, it, I could talk with you for hours, Father Francis, but I want to honor your time. And so as we as we start to close up this really just remarkable cascade of um, information, a, a few final things, if I might, you know, you, you are you are truly a unique individual to, to bring this level of extraordinary sophistication to a tradition that is actually, I mean, I, I have to qualify this, not your own, but I think on one level it is. How has, how has this study of Buddhism and these other traditions, but Buddhism in, in, in perhaps in particular, challenged, augmented your Catholicism? Has it made you a better Christian? Has it somehow, um, I mean, I, I think you'll understand where I'm coming from here. Um, why, why haven't you, so to speak, converted to Buddhism? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah, you know, a lot of people will say funny things like, oh, wow, if you study Buddhism, you know, you might might lose your faith, stuff like that. Right. And of, of course, 
you know, I don't even, I, it's, sometimes it's a little hard even to understand that question, but it does come up rather often. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it's a, but it is a, um, as with many friends, you know, many people I've known over the years in interreligious dialogue, uh, in, in, in academic uh, uh, areas and uh, in other situations here in Italy, giving retreats and back in the States, there are a lot of people whose Christianity came back to them thanks to their uh, practice of whether it was yoga or uh, Badriana or whatever. I, I, I uh, attended uh, retreats. Uh, one of them was a Nundro retreat mm. uh, at a center in Northern California, Chagda Rinpoche's oh, yeah. uh, place at uh, Riggs and Ling. And uh, the people organizing it were very, very kind. And, uh, you know, and I practiced uh, with the group. And, uh, but they said, you know, about 10% of the people here, there were 87 participants. About 10% of the people here are Christians who have no intention of becoming Buddhists, but they couldn't find anyone who would teach them the Christian contemplative tradition. Okay. Would you be uh, kind enough in the midst of this retreat? Would you receive these people, you know, for private instruction? You know, and they gave me the Lama's uh, uh, quarters to be able to do this. And I did, you know, and I did, and I was extremely happy to meet with these people because they were really remarkable people that had begun to awaken spiritually and they were really searching sincerely. And they, you know, to the extent that they would actually go on a Nodra retreat in a Buddhist center wow. to deepen their relationship with Christ. <laughs> you know, I mean, they, it was intentional, you know, they wanted a deeper encounter with the universal cosmic Christ. Uh, but they were not getting the instructions they needed from whether it was Catholic or Protestant clergy, you know. So uh, I hope even in this conversation and some of the other conversations that are online that people are aware of the fact that there is such a thing <laughs> as a con Christian contemplative tradition, that it is still alive, that it has been battered historically, uh, both from within and outside uh, institutional Christianity, uh, but uh, you know you can get an awful lot out of it, especially if I always tell people you know something has already clicked. Something I know, you know, when you look at certain people and you see what they're what they're asking and how they ask it, something has already clicked. So now the question is, deepen that click and let it resonate, right? Mm. Not not be stuck with the click, but move forward. And, uh, and that's where you start seeing people, you know, engaging in practice uh, in a serious way. Fantastic. And as, like, as you well know, His Holiness, by the way, in relationship to your earlier little discussion, what is his Tibetan name? Kundan. What does that mean? Yes. Presence. Yes. I mean, how beautiful is that? But as you well know, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama always says, you know, don't convert to Buddhism. Use yes. this information to augment your own tradition. I mean, how beautiful is that? I mean, what a what a fantastic. Way. We had a fantastic conversation on this topic and others back in 1997 in Dharamsala, and uh, we were. Uh, it was a very profound conversation, but we were also roaring with laughter, the two of us. It was so delightful, <laughs> really, really something, to talk with His Holiness and. Uh, explore i mean i even brought up dante you know <laughs> brought up that uh, you know that uh, the light mysticism and all of that and of course emptiness openness and and at the end he uh, gave a little instruction on you know visualizing christ 
and allowing Christ to become light and enter into my heart and then radiating that light to the whole world. Mm -hmm. You know, as a very simple uh, practice that could that anyone could do. And uh, I have taught that to a lot of Christians. In fact, I think at the California Institute of Integral Studies, right. several parishioners showed up and I taught them that during that uh, particular lecture. <laughs> so Father and, Francis, is this, is this a, a kind of a, um, a Christian generation stage practice then? Is that what you're kind of alluding to or? Yeah, that one could be considered, you know, like, uh, you know, you're, you're generating the awareness of the presence of Christ visualized in front of you. Yeah. You Then he dissolves into light. You take the light into your heart, right? And then you extend it to the whole world. So that concludes the practice, you know, because then you become light too and everything else becomes light in Christ, right? Mm -hmm. So that would be a very, uh, very quick. I like to call it a, a kind of act of spiritual communion. You know, because yeah. actually the, the the prayer of spiritual communion in which a person, for whatever reason, it cannot receive the Eucharist, but they imagine that they do, and then they receive its graces and they extend those graces to to the world around them. That's pretty pretty much the same idea. Absolutely, yeah. that's really beautiful. And so, as we start to really close this down, tell us a little bit about two things. What are you working on now? I mean, goodness, the stuff that you come up with. Um, <laughs> Where, where I, I'm just so fascinated with your mind and heart and the way and where it takes you. It's so original. What are you working on now? What, where, you know? Well, there's a couple of things. Yeah, I mean, I just finished a big study of um, early Tibetan history, the imperial period, and those. Uh, the the very fragmentary remains of Christian uh, presence in Central Asia and possible contacts with uh, with Tibetan civilization. So that I did that. Now I'm also working on, I've been working on a long, this a long time, but uh, I made huge progress last year and then I kind of stopped because I got busy with the COVID stuff and a lot of other things, but it's a translation of the Namzong Repa uh, Nyengyu. Now this is a text of practice instructions that uh, are given to us by one of Milarepa's main disciples. And it's quite interesting to see how many things in that particular book I've, I, I have transliterated and read it all the way through. I've translated it into, you know, into, uh, I, I've gotten to about 50 pages of translation and it's 250 pages long mm. and it's full, chock full of practices. And many of them bring us to the Bunpo Atri practice of the 13th century. So this is a 12th century text that in a certain sense orients us to where the Banpo were going in the following century. So this is a you know an amazing piece of work coming from a master who was himself a Nyingma master who became Milarepa, one of Milarepa's three main disciples. So I'm working on that. And then uh, you know I, I do a lot of artistic things and uh, uh, trying to work on a few icons. Uh, what else? <laughs> I'm trying to say rescue as many migrants as I can, <laughs> yeah. and and the and the herbal medicine project. Uh, we're we're helping a lot of people uh, with our local herbs, you know, making extracts, distillations, and teas. And I'm hoping to set up a small company that can give you know work to our migrants and other people around here uh, in a very productive and uh, really holy kind of work. The, the work of linking the gifts of nature to our uh, well-being. 
you know, so we're, I'm doing all of that. <laughs> That's really beautiful. Oh my goodness. And, and how can we, in part of our charter with our little community is, is um, cross-pollination of ideas and also just support. How, how can people learn more about you? How can they um, stay in touch with what you're doing and support you in, in whatever way they may be inspired to do so? Do you have a, uh, obviously a website or something that they can uh, connect to? You know, I gave up on the website because it was too expensive and not really getting that many hits. But what's really what it seems to work is, you know, just on Facebook, we have the uh, um, the Ettore Di Filippo Association. In other words, that bishop who ordained me, uh, we named a website uh, on Facebook after him. And there you'll see events that we have and the people that uh, come here for retreats and uh, meditation practice and a lot on our herbal interests and uh, you know all of that kind of activity. So that's a pretty good place to look. Uh, Associazione Ettore di Filippo. So, or you can just go et, Ettore di Filippo, which is E-T-T-O-R-E-D-I-F-I-L-I-P-P-O, Ettore di Filippo, and that should turn up on Facebook. And then the, what's the other stuff? And then I have my, my email, which a lot of people have found and have written to me. And that works pretty well because it gives me a chance to reflect a little bit before replying to people's questions. But I do try to reply uh, within a few days that's and good. all of that good stuff, you know, that's, that's really. <laughs> and really. By, the, by the books. <laughs> by the books, exactly. <laughs> by the books. <laughs> right. Totally. Because totally. that also helps, you know, the royalties help with the work that we're doing. Yeah. Uh, and that's, uh, that's very important. So with your with your indulgence and permission, I want to ask one one final. This is a very brief response. It's, it's, it's a canned question. And I, I don't ask it all that often, but I, I do ask it with people that are of your extraordinary kind of um, breadth and depth. And again, um, pardon the somewhat artificiality of this. But if you were to realize, Father Francis, um, that you were um, you had a minute left to live. What would be the irreducible um, instruction? What, what would you share with people as your irreducible instruction? Yeah, uh, like sort of last words, right? <laughs> uh, last words. I would say, you know, like, like Milarepa, you know, he pointed to his rear end and said, you see these calluses, practice, <laughs> right? See those calluses on my rear end, you know, practice. You do that too. In other words, what the what the teacher wants to see in the student is not smiles and turquoises and, you know, uh, all of this uh, external stuff. He would like to see people that have really committed themselves. And I think I would agree with that. I would say that. And take that, take whatever awakens the light within you, take mm. that with you and work on it. Mm. Okay whatever it is and uh, you know, what has clicked for you, you know, now go forward with it. Beautiful. I think that would be really crucial because uh, then people will be ready for their last minute. Uh, and that's, uh, uh, you know, not a scary moment. That's a beautiful moment. That's right. That's right. Well, Father Francis, what, what an absolute delight. Um, you, you are a gift to this world and you are in fact bringing your luminosity to illuminate the lives of others. So thank, thank you so much for your work, for your good heart, for your time with us. It means a great deal to me personally, and I'm profoundly grateful for what you represent and what you do. So thank you, my dear friend. 
Thank you, Andrew. Really, it's amazing that we can, you know, we have the space to do this and you've created it. So many blessings to you. All the best. Take care, Father Francis. Right. Good night now. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for fastening your seatbelts and joining us for this ride. He's amazing, isn't he? Father Francis, I have to keep reminding myself throughout the entire interview, I'm talking to a Catholic priest. Blew me away. And of course, a big thanks to Father Francis for sharing his extraordinary knowledge and expertise. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out all the other offerings on Nightclub. As usual, there's always a lot going on. So I'll see you next time. And until then, pleasant dreams.